I like that. I should go get a tie. You want me to go change, get a suit on? No. No, you don't need to do that. It looks like I'm in charge this way. We like the look of your library. <laughs> That's a very small portion of the library you're looking at. It goes all the way up, all the way down, all the way over. Wow, cool. Have you read any of them? <laughs> Two. I, read, I wrote three of them, so that's pretty good, right? <laughs> that counts. <laughs> Touche. Yeah, absolutely. Not only, uh, there's an Italian author named Umberto Eco who yep. uh, has passed away but wrote you know, um, all kinds of interesting work. But in Nassim uh, Taleb's book, The Black Swan, he dis describes uh, Umberto Eco had 30,000 volumes and people come over and say, Professor Echo, have you read all these books? And he said, no, this is my anti-library. And, and it's not what you've read. It's what you still have available when you need some idea or you want to go start reading something else. So I've read uh, approximately 40 to 50% of the books that are on the shelves here. That's and, cool. And the other half is my anti-library. Like right. it. I like it. We're in. Lauren, I'm just going to do a quick audio check with Lauren, just make sure we've got everything recording okay before we kick off. Sure. Is that all right. So Lauren, we've got audio coming out of there, haven't we? But not out of here. I can hear it through my, my headphones. I'm so, listening through my headphones. So you might want to mute it on the PC. For some reason, I feel like... Um you may not be qualified to be giving people technical advice. I mean, he can't hear with the headphones, but then he didn't have the headphones. No, no, he's definitely, I mean, he's like a technical genius unto me. Yeah. The selling side said, of it, not so hot, but actually, <laughs> <laughs> actually, the, you know, the technical side of it, it's, it's like, he's like a roadie and I'm like the Rolling Stones. Uh, that you can't do better than the Rolling Stones. They were the first one that came to mind. I don't even like them. Oh, they're amazing. Mick Jagger's yeah. 75 and he's... Yeah, well, he should have given up the ghost. I've got a real beam up on it about these old artists that are still going, really. What are they going to do? I don't know. They should, uh, they should retire <laughs> gracefully away. or disgracefully or whatever it is. Okay, so let me check that here. What about David Bowie? Should David Bowie have quit? No, wait, fairness, no, David Bowie, he was actually writing new material. And writing, and writing valid and important new material, even Black like... Star was amazing. Yeah. It was a great yeah. record, whereas the Stones haven't made a great record since Sticky Fingers. They're just singing the same old shit they did before. Okay, then we're going to have to have a long argument about the Stones. <laughs> so, uh, uh, Tattoo You was a really good record. We had a not dissimilar argument with Keith Rosen, actually, didn't we? We did, yeah. Because he, he's really into like that kind of genre so, of music. So let's, let's just air this out for one minute. I'm just going to talk... To, to you Brits, I mean, as straight as I can. So you gave us Deep Purple. You gave us Led Zeppelin. You gave us The Who. You even gave us Def Leppard and Whitesnake. You gave us these legendary brands, Judas Priest, Iron Maiden. I could go on and on. Yeah. What have you done for us lately? One Direction? Harry Styles? <laughs> that's what you're giving us? Direction. Talk about giving up your legacy. James Corden. Yeah, James we Corden, I like him. He's funny. Yeah, yeah, we exactly. gave you James, James Corden. Corden. But uh, what's disappointing okay. is he's become the arbiter of British culture, which is a fair <laughs> point. You can't, get me start, you can't get me started about Britain, Anthony. I'd leave. <laughs> I honestly would. I think it's rack and ruin, this place. And it's a I'm a real soapbox. I've got two kids and a wife. If it wasn't for them, I'd definitely leave. Would you? Yeah, 100%. And where would you go? 
anyway, I really don't. I really think that that Britain is not. I just. I think it's it's a it's a second class poor not poor as in monetarily, but I, right. I, just, I don't rate it anymore. The the rest of uh, England could be poor, but London surely isn't. I mean, there, no, there's London's no doubt about that. What do you have to pay to get an apartment in London? Yeah, London's a fabulous city. There's no doubt about that. Yes. You get to London much? Yeah, a couple of times a year. Yeah, it's fantastic, is London. I think it's the best city on earth. I, I would agree with that. That and then Las Vegas coming in second, I would think. <laughs> I actually mean that. I think Las Vegas is second for me. Right. It is what it is, isn't it? It, it is what it not, says on not the Not Paris, not New York. Not LA, didn't New York, didn't rate Berlin. I've been all over the world. I think Las Vegas was ex- absolutely excellent. That's more an insight into the mind of Michael than necessarily. Uh, well, it, it says it all. Shallow, superficial. <laughs> You've got it. There's no yeah. doubt about it. That's yeah. why the tie, it's, it's a facade. I get it now. Correct. It's a veneer. Right. It's a veneer. I think a we're going to have some veneer. fun this afternoon. I think we're some fun. <laughs> right. So today, what we, do, do you know much about book club and our show? Do you want me to tell you what we do? I watched a couple uh, videos, yeah. Right. So you know what we're up to? I do. Great. Okay. I mean, I hope I do. I'm, <laughs> I'm prepared for surprises, too. Like, who knew we were going to start with uh, the, the giving up the legacy of sending great music into the world? <laughs> I'm really trying to think what we've exported. Let's not worry about it. It'll come to me whilst I'm sat here. I promise. You're going to go with, like, Robbie Williams or something, I no. think, right? No. What Oasis? Else we, we did give you Oasis. I don't think you were in that, in, that into Oasis, though, really, were you? Oh, no, they, went big. they were big in the States. Oasis. Oasis. Oh, yeah, they were big here. To be were fair, they? that's 20 years ago. Yes. The, well, listen, I, 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 I fronted a, a hair metal band from the time I was 17 till I was 25. So, you know, I covered all these bands that you guys gave us, and now rock and roll is just dead. It's sad. Mm, this this is a conversation you and I could end up having till about four in the morning, because um, uh, I played in bands from about seventeen to twenty five, and I feel very similarly. But I've transitioned myself around electronic music and a lot of more modern genres. But I don't feel like anybody's doing anything truly inspiring. There, well, there's a couple other things. So the the fragmentation of media now, there can't be another Led Zeppelin. I mean, there no. can't be because everybody's streaming different things and we're not all listening to the same three channels. So because right. we're not all listening to the same channels, you'll, you'll never have critical mass again. I mean, it'll be very, very rare that you find something like that, unfortunately, but it was better when we were all watching the same TV shows. We had this sort of common experience that we don't have anymore. Yeah. I, I concur. So should we kick off? So Michael, yeah. we're sort of intellectualizing all this stuff about rock and roll and we're I, sorry, I was falling we're asleep. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> taking the piss. Know a lot about selling stuff and i've enjoyed your book taking the piss right out of the gate always with your grits i know it yeah, that's the problem with the that's us is we can't uh, particularly michael can't help himself no that's his his modus operandi right so uh anthony welcome to the show first question how do we pronounce your surname anna reno anna reno and just, just give her to the eye and you got it. It's the eye that's tricky. Cool. Right. Welcome to the show, Anthony. And thank you so much for coming on. Today, we're going to talk about Eat Their Lunch, uh, which is your newest book. Um, did you enjoy writing it? I did enjoy writing this one. And I, I enjoy, actually, I enjoy the writing process very much. I've written a blog post every day for nine years. 
Wow. So I, I do a lot of writing and that part I really enjoy. Editing, not so much. Uh, maybe go for a root canal or something like that <laughs> rather than having to do the editing. The editing, I mean, you put this thing out and then somebody looks at it and goes, yeah, that's terrible. No, that's not good. And you end up having the first time you see it, you have this emotional response like, wait a minute. And then you realize, okay, wait, they're trying to help me put out the best book that I can possibly put out. Their intentions are good. So maybe take it down a notch and look at it through a different lens. But the, the editing process is difficult. Yeah, I, I'm there right now. In a book? Yeah. Yeah, um, it's hard. Yeah, uh, I'm on re reread and draft before edit. And that's hard. Realize that's hard. lots of it's got to go. And what, what happens is you, you realize as you go through that process that uh, some of the things that you wrote that you were in love with when you wrote it just don't stand up on a second look and you, you start saying that doesn't need to be in here and yep. this is superfluous, get rid of it. But it's a tough process. You got it. So the first thing is in the book, uh, and what I've done is I've drawn a little mind map here and I've got some questions if, we, if it's okay, if we can sure, ask you sure. Um your forwards by Jeb Blount, Mike and I are big Jeb Blount fans, um, Fanatical Prospecting, I would say possibly my favorite ever sales book. I think everybody should be forced to read it in a way. Um, you've put here that you and Jeb are in violent agreement that the sales profession has gotten soft and that salespeople have lost their competitiveness or that Jeb puts it and obviously that you're both in agreement of it. Why do you think that is? Well, first, I just want to make sure that if you love him, you know how to pronounce his last name because it's Blunt. Is it? And it's blunt. Yes, it's pronounced blunt. So when you bring him on, eventually you'll know how to say that. Right. Uh, every, uh, it's shocking that people get um, his last name wrong. Mine, easy to get wrong. I get it. I've been introduced as Anthony, you're in a rhino. And I'm like, <laughs> you're not even in the ballpark, but okay, that's fine. But the, the reason that we're in violent agreement on this is that over the past, I'm going to call it at least... Well, I'll just, I'll, I'll go back a little bit. One book. So the law start of closing, we went from always be closing Glengarry Glenn Ross in the background right there to, yeah. and, and what people said is if always be closing is wrong, then what's the right answer? Never be closing. No, that that's, that's not right. There's a continuum of commitments that you have to gain and you have to gain a lot of commitments as you go through the sales process. And then it's don't interrupt anybody. Don't interrupt anybody. Just go out and social sell and post things on LinkedIn and try to contribute to the conversation and wait for people to raise their hand. So now we're waiting for them to raise their hand to create an opportunity and waiting for them to tell us what the next step in the sales process is. And don't interrupt anybody. I mean, I, and I just had this conversation with my friend Mike Weinberg this morning. You're a lifeguard. You're a world-class swimmer. Someone's drowning. You're like, look, I don't want to interrupt you right now while you're drowning. You know, I could save you but make life way better for you. But you look busy right now struggling against that water. You know, it, you're, you're trying to help people. You're trying to help them produce better results. You're not trying to hurt them. And so we've gotten to this point right now where the, the dominant conversation has been what you, what, I'll, I'll try to sum it up this way. Be a really good marketer. Don't ask people for things. Wait passively for things to happen to you. And the reason I wrote this book is because when I started talking about competition, I immediately started getting pushback. When you start talking about competition, Anthony, people are going to start behaving aggressively and they're going to start trying to destroy their competitor. That, that's not true, number one. And number two, it is a competition. Sales is a competition and it's a zero-sum game. Somebody wins Normally, everyone else loses, and if that's three people or five people or seven companies that are being considered, 
everyone else loses. So you, you have to go into this knowing that most of us live in a red ocean, which means there's lots of competition and you have to go out and compete to win. And I'll, I'll say this here because I keep saying it everywhere. You get paid for winning in our business and you don't get paid for playing the game. There's a reason there's a variable compensation is because if you win more, I can pay you more, but you're, you're playing the game to win, not to play the game. And then just to cover what you're saying there, because Jonathan and I were talking a little bit before we got together with you here now, and he said, listen, I'm going to ask Anthony about that. I've got to tell you, you know, I've been a sales recruiter for 20 years. I spent 20 years interviewing and placing salespeople, full stop. That's literally all I've done. And in between then, I was talking salespeople. And honestly, hand on heart, I don't think that salespeople as a, as a cohort have actually got weaker. I think they've always been quite weak. If you said to me, honestly, in terms of take a ballpark of 100 salespeople, how many would I spend my personal money on? It would be one in 10. And the nine in 10 are out there. And I've got to say, when I've read through the book, and it might be slightly taking you off tangent here as to what you're going to say, Jonathan, so I- is I think that your point about salespeople having gotten weaker, I don't necessarily agree with it. But what I do think the book does is it is it it allows us to analyze salespeople so that we can say who is good and who is bad. Because I actually, I mean, we'll go into the book more, but I thought the book was great. Uh, I like a lot of the points that you raise. And I think to myself, a lot of the points that you raise, a lot of people should be doing. And then if they read it, the good guys that aren't doing it will go, right, damn it, I'm going to do that. That's a good idea. But I think that we've got to accept that a lot of people who read the sales book and stuff just simply don't do it. Because they just don't want to, that they're, fear, they're fearful of confrontation as much as anything. Yeah, conflict aversion. That's a big one. Yeah. You know, I, I uh, had a meeting with Seth Godin uh, a few months ago, and we were talking about books. And he said, you know why no one reads books, right? And I said, no, because I read a lot of books. <laughs> so I, I think other people read books. That's my, my bias. And he said, they think that they need help with something. And so they buy the book. And having bought the book, they solve their problem. So correct. They, it's like joining the gym and expecting to lose weight without going. <laughs> it's the same thing, isn't it? I'm about to say this, even though I don't want to, because it's my business model, Michael, but I want to start a gym where it's $75 a month for the gym membership, but you have to go four days a week. And if you don't, then it's $1,000 a month. You'd be rich. I'll be rich in no time, right? Yeah, because the, the odds are I'm going to have an empty gym. And I'll be dinging. Because that's it. You got to go. Yeah, correct. And that's a bit like this book and like every other sales book out there. It's one thing reading it. Another, it's another thing actually putting it into practice and actually doing it. I mean, I'm going off tangent here, Jonathan. Actually doing integrating stuff. learning. Actually doing it. I liked actually, I must say, the section that you had at the end of each chapter, you know, a to-do list. I thought that was, that, Do was, it now. that was a solid thing. If let's say... You had a thousand people read this book, Anthony. How many of those thousand people do you think are going to follow it through and do the actions in it? A hundred to one hundred and fifty, and I I can just say so that generally percentage is me then, really. Yeah, gen- generalizing. You know, I'm I'm probably getting one LinkedIn note or an email a day saying, "I've decided to use the four trends to prospect in the way that you described it," and I have seventeen meetings next week, and and th- that that is the kind of thing I know who's using it and what they're doing because they send me notes to tell me like chapter five is really hard. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Well, I know you read the chapter five then because it's really hard. And, <laughs> and, 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 and we're going to talk to you about that too. Yeah, um, I know. So, so that, that, 
that, that's how I can tell. I'll say one last thing. There's a book by a, an American Navy SEAL named David Goggins, who's now an ultra uh, athlete, a very interesting guy. And he quotes uh, Heraclitus, who was a, a Persian philosopher, I think, who said, uh, in a hundred uh, soldiers, 10 of them have no business being there. 80 of them are just targets. Nine of them are really good fighters. And one is a warrior. Right. I like it. That, that's about how things break down. I really like that. What was the book by David Goggins? Can't Hurt Me. I've not read that. Pick it up. Right, that's going on the list. Cool. I, like, I liked that. So the other thing early on in the book, in the introduction, you've talked about um, trusted advisors, and you've talked about being a trusted advisor throughout the book. Now, actually, Mike and I piloted the whole book club concept about two years ago, and the book that we discussed was actually the book entitled The Trusted Advisor. By David Meister and yeah. Charlie Green, a yeah. good friend of mine. And um, Mike and I have a slightly difficult anchor to the phrase trusted advisor, and I'll, I'll put some context behind that, which is, a, you know, we're interviewing probably about 10 candidates each a week, been doing it for about 20 years. Normally, when a candidate refers to himself as a trusted advisor in the UK sales market, it's normally a precursor to what is going to be an interview in which you find out that he hasn't sold that much. Correct. So I, I chuckled a little bit because I'm always very nervous about the phrase trusted advisor. Uh, and at the same time, I'm very aware, particularly, for example, if we look at our own business strategy, the fact that we're doing this right now, this is all part of a strategy to be a trusted advisor to our clients. Sure. But I'm always very nervous about it, almost linguistically. Well, well, let's talk about it linguistically, because what should your aspiration be if not to have your client consider you a trusted advisor? That's not something, I see this on LinkedIn, so I get it. And I look at it when somebody says trusted advisor in their, their yeah, profile as a title, I'm like, you can't call yourself that. Some yeah. client can decide that you're their trusted advisor by behaving in such a way, saying, I'm not going to make a decision without talking to uh, Jonathan first. Okay, so yeah. you know you're sitting in that position. Or when you have the client call you and say, listen, I'm going through a divorce and I'd like to talk to you about that. And you're like, well, I don't, I'm not a lawyer. I don't do divorce. But yeah, but I know I get good advice from you. So when they start asking you for advice outside of your domain experience, you know you're a trusted advisor. But you can't call yourself that. But you do have to aspire to being that. And, and that's why I use the word trusted advisor, not because you already are one, but because you should be moving in that direction as much as you can by exhibiting the behaviors that would cause someone to call you that. Yeah. Does, that does that make it better? Yes, it does. I feel a little bit better about it. And I think actually often the ones, the ones that Mike and I meet who actually are truly trusted advisors who really have invested in, uh, I think the phrase you use is 52% SME. Right. Um, they're the ones that don't refer to themselves as trusted advisors. And they're normally no. more humble about it. No, in fact, they're generally the opposite. They tend to think that they don't know enough. They, they yeah. tend to feel a gap and I don't know enough. I need to learn more. I'm trying to gain greater knowledge so I can offer better advice to people. They actually feel like they don't have enough, which is why they keep striving. Look at this, uh, all these books behind me. You think this is because I think I know anything or because I think <laughs> I'm still missing something. I mean, I'm missing a lot. I'm constantly trying to read to find out uh, well, here's my goal every day to be slightly less dumb than the day before. 
um, slightly less. Like it's, so you're saying um, humility is a big part of the trusted advisor? Intellectual then. humility, yeah. It, it has to be in a world of constant accelerating disruptive change where things keep going faster. I mean, the, the world moves so fast and the amount of knowledge that we're acquiring and how to, to navigate this, you have to continue learning. Yeah, I concur. And, and no, it's normally the ones that are, Mike and I often talk about what we call students of the craft right and people who respect the craft and it's a small percentage but the ones that respect the craft normally their careers stand the test of time don't they well it's like it's like anything in general isn't it you, you know you look at the top golfers in the world what do they do they have a golf lesson every day yeah they don't just get to a point and then stop training that's why your bookshelf's full of books isn't it essentially yeah. it's right it's why we've got the books on the table it's why we're reading the books yeah you know, full stop that's it so anthony I really liked the whole thing about entering from the right and your levels of value creation. That was a, a new paradigm for me. And it's a paradigm that has got me thinking, you know, I don't adopt everything in every book I read, but there's certain bits I'm going to adopt and the certain bits Mike and I will tell you have adopted in the last few weeks because it's been concurrent with our uh, 2019 business plan that we've actually slipped into our own business model a little bit. Um, you have to excuse us because we're all sat so still the lights have gone off in the building. There you um, go. There you go. Um, where did the whole entering from the right and the four levels of value creation come from? I spoke to uh, a company and they had a group of strategic account managers. Right. And they were, they were struggling to keep their jobs. I mean, that, that, that's what they were doing. Their leader was struggling to keep their jobs. And, and I'd had this uh, concept of looking at, wait a second, how much value do you actually create? And so I'd been thinking about it for some time. But in a, a conference room with them, I drew this up on the, the whiteboard to say, what, what are the activities that you're doing and trying to bucket them for them? And I showed them what they were doing was basically, I would call glorified customer service. I mean, right. that, 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 that's, that's really what they were. And then what they were capable of doing was something very different. And, and I showed them that the gap between the, the behaviors that they were doing now and what they could do if they wanted to, I could drive five trucks side by side right through that gap. I mean, it was enormous. And uh, I basically had to tell them, don't, don't start conversations over here with customer service. Give that back to the people that it belongs to and have this conversation over here. And after that uh, one day, you know, half day training with them, just basically having a workshop, uh, they went out and created three and a half million dollars in new revenue in the next 45 days. So and it was, it, it, it was the behavioral change. But I had been trying to find a way to describe what level you're really at. And so products, not advice, uh, your experience, how easy to do business with you are is not advice. The fact that the product actually works is not advice. Advice is advice. And so if you're trying to help people change, it doesn't start with product. I mean, the product isn't why they're changing the products to solve something bigger. And if you get to level three, it's this product doesn't work. It's not getting a result for us. But if you get to level four, then it's, I'm going to give you the advice as to what you could do. And, and in the first book I wrote, The Only Sales Guide You'll Ever Need, I quoted Theodore Levitt, a uh, marketing professor from Harvard, who said, people don't buy drills, they buy quarter-inch holes. And yes. if they could have the hole without the drill, they would just have the hole. But, but now we're at a point where I have to tell you, first off, you need a hole. You don't even agree that you need a hole right now. Mm. And then I need to tell you what that hole needs to look like and why because you're not aware of this in most cases. And that's probably the biggest change over the last, I'm going to call it a couple decades, maybe a decade for sure, where the client's not dissatisfied. You go, tell me about your pain points. 
we we figured a way around all of the the problems we have with a particular vendor. We're figuring it out. We've been workarounds. You don't show up. What's keeping you up at night? Nothing. I mean, they found a way to be okay. And so you have to come in and now enter from uh, level four because that's the conversation around why should I do something different at all? What are you trying to tell me? And, yeah. and that's the part that matters. Do you know what I thought about? The, by the way, the L1 to L4 thing, I agree with Jonathan. I thought it was right on the money that. So I'm not in any way disagreeing with it. But what I did think when I looked at it was, I think that L4 takes a braver salesperson than L1. And I think there's L1 salespeople who rely on their products and all those kind of things. What they're actually doing is not exposing themselves, I think is half Correct. And I think that's, that's what it's about, isn't it? Because actually, guess what, Anthony? I'm trying to sell you this pen, right? And I'm just pitching you the product. If you don't, if you don't buy the pen, you've, you've not, uh, it's not an affront to me, it's an affront to the pen. And actually, and, and, and to the company behind it to a degree. Rather, whereas L4, I think what's going to happen is, you, you know, you're going to take this as a training course, you're going to go to, you know, I don't know, Xerox, whoever it is, some big multinational, you're going to say, right, we want you to stop selling photocopies and start selling outcomes of business productivity. And then I think what's going to happen is that a bucket load of the salespeople are just going to slowly disappear away because I found over the years of doing this that a lot of people hide behind product to either protect themselves or to validate the reasons that they haven't been successful. And I think well, it's a great strategy, but it is going to expose some people, I think. What, what, it, what, it, what you're saying is exactly right. And I know that's a surprise to you because you're everybody in the room surprised that you were exactly right on that. Certainly, uh, <laughs> Jonathan is. The the uh, the the you're you're spot on. So what happens is if I don't feel like I'm the value proposition, like my advice is worth taking, I belong in the room. I have the insights. I have the experience. I have the ability to move this company to a better place. Then I'm going to say, uh, Michael, let me start by telling you about our company. Our company's been in business for 22 years and we've got investors from these companies and we have these people on our board and we have these logos of the companies that we've won to, and we've done that by giving them these products and services. I'm not any part of this. I'm just showing up telling you, well, you I don't feel like later, I have anything. You mentioned that later in the book and I, and I think you're absolutely on the money there. Yeah. And so if I can't create any value, then I have to start looking for where, where's the real value because it's not me. And if you don't believe that you're the value proposition, selling is going to be very, very difficult for you if you're in B2B complex enterprise strategic sales. I mean, you, you have to show up and be somebody worth having in the room. And it, is, it, is, it already exposes well, you. Well, you talk about treating them like the pair. I think what's interesting is Jonathan and I have a, uh, uh, a, a hobby, really, of picking on IBM salespeople. Um, and actually, you <laughs> know, it's, it's, it's become it, the national sport. Yeah, absolutely. It? And in the olden days, you know, it was all about feature advantage benefit. And actually, when I was reading L1 to L4, I thought to myself, what the guy's done here, he said, feature advantage benefit belongs 20 years ago. And I sort of agree with you in that. I think that's, a, that's the right sort of frame of mind. Is when you're talking to your clients who presumably are buying training from you, there must be some, some resistance from the older guard, not necessarily old people, but the older guard who spent their life feature advantage benefit selling. It, de it depends. I mean, so when, when I speak to some groups, uh, when I explain to them, you're allowed to take all of the knowledge and experience that you've acquired and now start applying it. No one told them that. They didn't know there was a level four. And some of them yeah. were exhibiting level four behaviors long before I showed up. They just didn't have a name for it. And so some of them feel like they've been free to come in and 
say, listen, I have a very strong opinion about what the right answer is here, mm. informed by the fact that, that you're buying an ERP system for the second time, and I've done 527 installs. So I like what you're doing, but let me tell you, here's the trade-offs that you need to start thinking about. And, and people are free, like, wait, I'm allowed to leverage my views and values and talk about these things? Yes. In fact, no one needs you if you don't have a strong opinion about what they're supposed to no. be doing, and how they're going to get better results. I don't need you then. And the, the, this is, it's one of two things. And the second thing I'll tell you is younger people have a very tough time with this. And, and when they look at it, well, I don't have that experience yet. I don't have the situational knowledge. But the fact that they've been exposed now to where the bar is mm. means that they're going to have a better head start because they now know what they need to aspire to do and what they need to, to study to get there. Yeah. And, and, and they, if they come in features, advantages, benefits, listen, you need all four of the levels. It's just I'm, I'm talking about where you start. Somebody cares deeply about seeing a software demo if you're a SaaS company. It's, it's certainly not the decision maker. But some person think, on our team cares about that. And, and sorry, Jonathan, I know you've got some stuff to cover here, but this is just, I like the way this car is completely <laughs> taken over this. Sorry. And by the way, just to be clear, the police car is our end, not yours. Uh, I can hear yeah, it. It sounds like we live in South Central LA or somewhere. Isn't it? <laughs> well, I, I, I think they're going to find you eventually, Michael, and yeah. then it'll be just well, me and Jonathan when they take you out in handcuffs. <laughs> well, but so, so what I was going to say is that, you know, because clearly you're from a staffing background, you know, you make that pretty clear in the book. I think that, or, or I certainly felt as I was reading this, I thought to myself, is it harder to have an L4 style conversation in a straight commodity market than it is in the software market where there's a more greater differentiator about the product? It, it, it is uh, the same for everyone. So I, I don't care what it is that you sell. If you present as a commodity, you're treated as a commodity. So if you present as a commodity in, in what you do recruiting, if you present as one, what I, what I would tell you is I've discovered working with clients for a long time and having many clients of my own, they'll just accept whatever you show them. Like I'm a commodity. We, we have this product. It's really great. You should buy it. Great. I'll purchase and send you an RFP when we evaluate that next year. You, you just described yourself as a commodity. I know exactly what to do with you. Mm. But if you say, I was looking at your business and I have a theory. I think that there's other opportunities available for you because you haven't addressed these trends based on what I can see. And I have some ideas about it. Now somebody has to look at you and go, okay, so what are you trying to tell me? Help me, help me understand what you're saying. And, and what we're doing in discovery now, which we'll probably talk about at some point, yeah. discovery is not what's keeping you up at night. It's helping somebody discover something about themselves. So they open up the gap and say, wait a second, I now recognize that there's something better here available to me that's worth talking about. Yeah, I, I agree. The, I think it, it's interesting. You've talked about in the discovery bit about examining super trends and really looking at a the super trend and also you talk a little bit less about really examining the business that's in front of you so for example mike and i are both running nurture campaigns on some certain sectors of our own business at the moment what mike's doing is he's got quite a scalable slightly automated approach and i'm doing an extremely detailed approach to each organization um, i mean i'm going really in so i'm it's not minimal viable research as you refer to it and what we're doing is we're A-B testing, which is the sweet spot based on the approaches that we're taking as part of the Canvas campaign. My issue with it is, and it, I, I don't disagree with it. My only question is, I've just read a book called Blitzscaling by Reid Hoffman. Mm -hmm. um, 
about how organizations scale very rapidly. And you yourself talk in the book about automation. I'm nervous that it's just not as scalable in a business model. And I think that the reason why companies don't promote being a trusted advisor, don't promote generally truly adding value to the sales process is because there's pressure from the economic environment, from venture capitalists, from backers, from investors to say, we've got to scale, we've got to scale, we've got to scale, we've got to scale. And that pressure to scale actually is counterintuitive to what will scale. Does that make sense? Uh, well, let, let me speak to that for, for a minute. So the first thing that I would tell you is if, if you want to have a relationship with uh, a company that I would describe as your dream client, somebody yeah. that you, you can do breathtaking or shattering value creation for, who's going to recognize that in you, you're, you're, you do not need to have a strategy that says, I'm going to spray and pray across thousands and thousands of names. That, that is what you do if you sell a SaaS model where someone can sign up for $99 a month. That, that's a different type of scaling. So what's happened is uh, Silicon Valley has distorted our view of good sales practices in a couple ways. One, they think uh, the way to capture new customers is through automation and without human interference. What they've all done is looked at Jeff Bezos, who hates salespeople, but has 300 of them that work for uh, Amazon Web Services because you can't sell that to anybody without salespeople. But that's the dream for them. All we do is push the button and bring in customers. And yeah. in the B2C world, that sort of works. But when there's CEB, will say 6.8 people in a deal where there's, there's risk, where there's a significant amount of money where it's a partnership, when, when you start looking at those factors, you're not going to do that over an email. That, that sales process isn't going to be run over an email campaign. It's not. So my recommendation is pick your 60 targets. That's scalable. If I have 15 or if I have 150 reps, giving them their 60 primary targets and having them dedicate their energy and their time and all of our resources against those targets is scalable and it does work. And it is how companies tend to scale. So I, I will tell you, this is a distortion that comes out of Silicon Valley, who, who um, I'll say this in the way that I say it, that's a little bit on edge here, but I think you Brits can, can handle this. So uh, sexting isn't going to replace actual sex. And, it, it, and it's, I know that there's apps and people are doing lots of things on apps, but human relationships are not going to go away, number one. And the role of trusted advisor, uh, pick up old books, like pick up the uh, King James Bible and you'll find out that every great leader had people, even the Pharaoh had people that they turned to for uh, advice in areas that they yes. don't know. That's not going to change. So I'm, I'm, I will tell you the reason that I look at super trends and, and look, so you can go from the very general to the very specific, which is what you're doing. So Michael's going general, you're going general to specific. Mm. You can read the 10Q. I mean, you can read the 10K. You can read the chairman's uh, annual report, the, the letter to shareholders, and you can find out lots of good things that will inform that conversation. I tend to get to the specific after the general because if they say yes to a meeting, now I better get specific. Now I better do more research to know. But the fact of the matter is the reason we look at the super trends is because it's systemic and you can have a theory that almost any company that's in this vertical is having yeah. this problem. So, oh, right. now, so, what you're, so what you're talking about here then is categorizing what's going into your top of your pipeline to the, to the point at which there's going to be the greatest 
level of receiving because they're, they're having a common problem of time. Correct. So we're looking for systemic that's broad enough that I can prospect. And then if somebody says yes to a meeting, I mean, by, by all means, don't do minimum viable research. Show up and have having read what you needed to read and studied what you needed. I mean, the worst thing I've ever seen happen, true story, worst thing. So, uh, Michael, can you tell me what your company does? Oh, really? You're already done. It's crazy. I was talking to a client of ours on Friday, and he's looking for a marketing director. And I said, how's it been going? He said, yesterday's interview was interesting. I said, why is that? Unbelievable. He said, he said the guy turned up and hadn't looked at their website. And he's a marketing. You this is a £120,000 sterling basic salary job. You know, it's a big job. It's nearly twice as much as a general practitioner earns. And he hadn't even looked at the website. But do you know what, what, you know what, what, is, what doesn't surprise me? It won't be any different in the States to how it is in the UK. And I'm talking business consumer selling. How little research people have done before they pick up the phone. Yeah. It's ludicrous. I, the, the, this, this, but that's like Anthony said. It's about it's about Silicon Valley creating this. I think it's message, more than that. I think it's about creating this message that you can scale. scale You're both right. Marketing okay. automation with um, these outreach apps that automate email after email and decision threads. When actually, sometimes looking at a decision maker and thinking, how am I going to approach this guy and what am I going to say in the call? actually is a slightly different approach. Because I think, Anthony, on that subject, and again, we'll talk about maybe some cultural difference between the States and the UK. I've got a real bee in my bonnet about millennials, about young people who live in this sort of uh, environment in which everything they want, they get immediately. Mm-hmm. I want to listen to some music, it's on Spotify. I want to watch them, it's on Netflix. I want to do it and all the rest of it. And actually, now I want I've, food and a man's going to show up with a it. A man's going to show up with it on his backpack. You know, it's <laughs> just the world is absolutely mad. And I think that what that has created is an inherent laziness in some of the younger salespeople in their willingness to do those, those sort of hard yard, dirty yard initial bits. And I'm finding we're getting a bit of backlash. Don't well, it's, you just- it's two things that we've noticed, Anthony. One is um, the millennial sales guy gets to a point where he, he matures into a strategic level sales role and they find it immensely frustrating because they don't get instant gratification. And they no, is there's a generation of young salespeople who are getting to the stage where they're at eat their lunch and they're beyond a transactional one-to-one sale. And they, I've noticed that it's a generation that's finding it much harder to make that transition because they're so used to give me, give me now. And then the concept of seven or eight stakeholders and a sales cycle that might take six to nine months, very painful for them. Then the other element that we find is that equally, um, and a lot of people will attest to this, Dave Shields, who runs Celsius Graduate Sales Recruitment in the UK, and one of the major graduate sales recruiters, he said they just don't want to cold call these guys. Whereas that's, that's in fear. the 90s, we, we were like, look, just give me money, I'll do it. That's, that's, that's predominantly fear. And, you know, when you think about... I agree with you, you're right, it is fear. It's fear that, that one, I, and, and if you're conflict diverse and, and, you know, I've got three children and uh, what I've told them is that the greatest adversity they've experienced in their life is the lack of adversity that they've, they've had in their life. I mean, that's the greatest adversity yeah. they've had is that they haven't had enough adversity. And uh, I've, I've been shaped by adversity and I, 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 of all the things that I'm grateful for, it's adversity. I mean, if I had to pick one. 
So they're conflict averse. So that, that's a problem. And then they're afraid, what if they start asking me questions and I don't know enough? And, and we're talking to people about product knowledge, but we're not talking to them about how do you help give people the advice that they need to do better with their business, which is why I keep writing books. Like you have to be, you have to be willing to be consultative. And so what, what consultative means to us, you know, what, what they think it means is not high pressure, not a hard sell, ask really good questions. No, that's not what consultative means. Consultative means I tell you how to better run your business. That, that's what consultation means. I'm consulting you. I'm telling you this is a better choice than what you're doing now. And they're afraid they don't occupy that space, which is why the last third of the book is about dealing with that. You, you have to feel like you're a peer, like you're a 52% subject matter expert. You have to have an executive presence and a, and a point of view about things or you're going to have a tough time. But when you have that, picking up the phone is easy. And, is. and I'll say one last thing about them. So when I started selling, the leads that I had uh, was the white pages and there was a blue section in the back with all the businesses. And I dialed literally from A to M before I had so much business. I could just go back to the index cards. I kept everything on and flipped them over every day and just dialed every card. But you now have LinkedIn. So I don't think LinkedIn's a great place to prospect. But if, if you're going to have a meeting with someone and they typed in everything that they're proud of and that they want you to know about them, you're not going to go read what they want you to know about them that they put out for the world as the image that they portray to the world. Yeah. How, how ridiculously lazy is that, that you're not going to print the PDF before you go into a meeting and, and know something about that individual? It's like, crazy. I completely agree with you. Let's move on to the big, the big elephant in the room. Chapter five. Uh, Anthony chapter five. So Mike and I, uh, you know, we, we do the show and we love doing the show. And the thing about this show is when we first started doing it, we quickly realized, damn it, we're going to have to read every book we talk about actually properly, which has been actually a really cool journey for us because it's enforced self-development on top of any other personal development we do. And but, it's clear that both of you really needed that too. I mean, just in a conversation, <laughs> I could tell. And, and, um, we, we, we tend to read at odd times. So I think I read chapter five at about 4.30 a.m. And I, 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 you know, with a cup of coffee next to me. And I found it very heavy going. I, I, do you know what I wanted to do with chapter five, Anthony? I wanted to pitch put your house with a bottle of whiskey. And I wanted to say, <laughs> right, we're going to debate this. We're gonna, we need to talk. Because, I don't, I, and let's be clear, I don't necessarily disagree with it. I'm not saying no, that at great. all. it's I'm great. I'm not saying that at all. But I'm saying that the book goes... Easy to read, get it. Just it just it just sinks in easily. It's e- it just yeah. very palatable, easy actions. It all makes sense, you know. And it's like it, you know, you, you glide into this beautiful lake. Then all of a sudden, somebody pushes you in the mud. And you think, oh, this is what difficult. The what the hell? Because it's happening? like a complete new paradigm. And I'm not saying I disagree with it. Let's be 100 percent clear. But I thought, wow, that was heavy going. That yeah. And what yeah. I can't work out is. I mean, I'm 47 now, and uh, you know, my training is spin, Miller Hyman. Yeah. Um, so I, I've got those paradigms very, very deeply ingrained. And I couldn't work out whether I'm getting old and struggling to take on a new paradigm here or whether it's such a big new paradigm, it's just going to take a lot I, of taking I thought on. that chapter, you know, I thought you could have written a book on that. 
Yeah, I, 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 I may, because the discovery process is where you win deals. I know people think they win a deal when the contract is signed, but they win the deal long can before we ever do, get the contract, Can you, right? before you go on to and talk about it, actually, because the people listening, you just give us a two-line <laughs> sort of summary of what's in Chapter 5, because you will do it more eloquently than we will. Chapter 5 describes the way that people and cultures think and work and how to understand how to create value for someone based on what you're seeing in front of you. And I'll I'll give you the summary of this in uh, the shortest way that I can. There are basically four quadrants that we look at. And we look at an individual, and there's two quadrants for them, their interior and their exterior. And their interior is what do they think? What do they believe? What are their values? And, and so that is something that we're really good at. We're really good at interiors because as salespeople, we ask questions so that we can get those, those interiors out on paper so we can go, look, they're really trying to do this. But that's the surface levels. So we're, we're looking a little bit deeper to say, why are they driven that way? Is it significance that they want? What is it? Why, why are they pursuing this the way that they're pursuing it? Is it certainty? Is it contribution? What are they trying to do? And then we look at the exterior. What are they actually doing? Can you see what they're actually doing? Something that's measurable. And a lot of times what you'll see is a conflict between what they say they want and what they're doing. So now that opens up the opportunity for a gap. You say that you're trying to get speed to market, but the way that you're doing this over here with automating all of your emails is probably not going to give you speed to market and a B2B sale. And Jeffrey Moore who wrote Crossing the Chasm has a great LinkedIn post on thinking about the different segments of the business that you call on. So this is enterprise complex. The second part of it though, is that cultures have an interior and an exterior. So organizations have an exterior and an interior. So what's the culture like? Is it a power-based culture where there's an authoritarian sort of bent to things where you do it our way or we throw you out of here? Or is it more of uh, the, the millennial type culture now where it's what's called green? So it's it's about consensus and we don't want to do anything if somebody doesn't like it. So we're going to be really slow and you can find a, an, an what we would call an orange leader, which just means rational and, and tends to be driven and achievement oriented up against a green culture. Who's like, no, no, no. Some people don't think that's the right answer. So we can't do anything. And you can see those things. So you know how to help them discover weight. If we don't bring these people up to where we are, it doesn't happen. And the exterior is what are their systems and processes? So what I've tried to do is give people a new lens to look at discovery. And some of the examples uh, I think maybe need to be rewritten to make them easier for people to see where me, I maybe drop them into the quadrant so they can see where they are. But the fact of the matter is there's all this conflict going on inside their company. There's yeah, all these conflicts between what people want and what they're doing and what they believe. And if you can see those, then you can help them discover that there's something else here. And the, the couple case studies that I I wrote that are sort of disguised real life examples mm. uh, sort of give you the idea of this hard charging leader that comes in yep. and they're not doing the things that, that he thinks they should be doing, but doing the things that he wants them to do would upset the way that things have been. And, and you have to draw those things out so that you're, you're really, and, and if you, if you would look at the book that or the word that occurs in my three books more than any other, it's change. So yeah. how do you help people change? they can't see their interior because it's like the glasses on your face. You see the whole world through your interior. Okay. Mm. Well, I'm going to show you some other things to look at so that I can move you forward. That that's the heart of that chapter. And, and it's the, the structures of consciousness, the, the red, the green and the orange, there's many more structures. And this is all 
very, very hard science that if, if you look at people, they, they get stuck That's in a, sort of a cultural think- structure. But if you can't see that structure, you don't really know who you're talking to. And the easiest way for people to understand this is we have a President Trump who's orange. He's hard charging, success oriented. He's not, not like that he, as the cultural strata. And then you've got people like uh, Obama and Hillary Clinton who are more green, more sensitive. And the reason that they're at war with each other is because their values conflict about yeah. what, what things should look like. And that happens in businesses, too. Mm. And Yes, it does. Yes, it does. So for, for me, uh, what I got out of chapter five, and I've been looking at the book again today, was it needs, for me, I'm going to read it again. Do you, do you know, I'm, I'm sort of on the same place to it, because I've got to tell you, the minute I read chapter five, I hated it. But then actually what happened is I ride my bike to and from work, and I was riding my bike thinking, I couldn't get chapter five out of my head, actually. Yeah. And the more I thought about it, the more it made sense to me. And I think Jonathan was right in as much as, if you were to say to me, listen, Mike, before, before I've read your book, you know, we're in the pub having a beer and you said, listen, Mike, talk to you about the interrelationship in, uh, between different decision makers and your prospects. What's your paradigm? I'm going to get out Millerheim and Blue Sheet. That right. is what I'm going to do. Right. But actually right. what Millerheim and Blue Sheet does is that talks about the, the, their function rather than necessarily their type. And actually, right. the more I read chapter five, yeah. the more I thought about chapter five, I thought, do you know what, Mike? Maybe we've just been a bit pig ignorant, really, because you're that way out. And actually, maybe and this fellow's got It's just another level down. It's yeah, just another yeah, level yeah. down Absol- of learning absolutely. for all of us. Absolutely. And the more I thought about it, and I would say anybody that reads this book is, chapter five, read it twice, and then think about it, and then go back to it. And to be fair, you've mentioned a couple of other authors. You know, you've mentioned Ken Wilbur, and you've mentioned Spiral Dynamics there. Yeah. Um, I think sometimes some books, I call them rabbit hole books, where you read the book and actually you then read the references in the book and then you read some of the books that are in the references. And I think chapter five is a rabbit hole to go down in its own right. And if you're interested in actually getting your head around discovery, I, I, I've reframed it a little bit that it's an invitation to think an awful lot harder about what's going on at a values and cultural oh. within the businesses we sell to. In the world that we live in, and I'll, I'll give you um, a couple pieces of guidance for anybody who wants to go down this rabbit hole, because what, what will happen if you go out to Audible and you download a book called Cosmic Consciousness with a K by Ken Wilber, right. it's not really a book. It's him being interviewed for 12 hours, and it's the very best way to get into his content because he's so funny and you'll get his humor. If you read his book, there's a lot of humor in it, but if you haven't heard him speak, directly and I've spent a lot of time with Ken in his flat you know asking him to help like okay there's 20 laws for whole lawns in sex psychology spirituality what the hell does any of that mean you know so I've had a chance to sit with him and and ask him the hardest of hard questions and and learn some of this but if you listen to that you will never see human beings or cultures the same way again it's like somebody pops pops out your eyes and puts new eyes in and you realize the reason these people don't like each other is because their view of the world is set in this particular way. And what happens is, is and this is, all, this is all scientific, and so Maslow studied this, Claire Graves studied it, Robert Keegan at Harvard studies it. Uh, you tend to rise through levels over time, and you, you tend to become more green and more sensitive and want people to be taken care of yeah. as mature. And you start off very selfish, red, power, I mean, and so when you, when you look at our President Trump, and I'm not political here, I'm not being political, but when he doesn't get what he wants, he resorts to power, you know, he's and like he a resorts to, boy. 
because that's that's what you are at that age. And he yeah. uses that very, very, you know, tactically. Right now we have our government shut down and uh, our our house of our speaker of the house disinvited him for the State of the Union. So he canceled her flight to Afghanistan, you know, and and you're looking at at this red power behavior from people in their 70, their 70s. I mean, they should be much, much better than they are, but it's politics. So I'm just telling you this because when you look and you guys have Theresa May and you have Brexit, you have all these same kind of things going on. But when you look, people are set at a certain level. And when you disrupt that level, it's very difficult for them. And they don't, they don't understand why they're seeing what they're seeing or how things are going. Remind me what that book is again. I'm just going to write it in my notes. Cosmic Consciousness. It's cosmic with a K. And then I would also recommend Spiral Dynamics uh, by Don Beck. Yeah. And, and that one is an easier entry point. And Don Beck, Don Beck flew to South Africa 60 times to help deal with apartheid. So, so he, he started to teach people there, don't look at people's skin color. Look at what their value system is. And, and Spiral Dynamics is specifically values. It was really good, Spiral Dynamics. Uh, I found it very dense when I first read it, but it's a very, very valuable book. It's a very it's different a way of looking book. at the world. Yes. It is. it is. So there was a couple of things moving on to Chapter 6, because we could stay in Chapter 5, I think, all day. Um, and you're talking about creating opportunities, and there was a note I made in one of the, one of the bits of it where I just put, don't long-term partners have contracts? So You, it, you hope so. Yeah. So if I'm competitively trying to displace a competitor, surely in a lot of environments, for example, in a SaaS environment, it's not as difficult because most of those contracts are annual now. But there are still lots of contracts that are two, you know, ERP, you mentioned earlier, a lot of those ERP deals are three, five year deals because the nature of the projects are so big. Um, Where does the contract come in to creating the opportunity if the dissatisfaction is high enough the contract will will go away number one but i would tell you the the three years is going to pass whether or not you prospect and work on that client or not yes the, the decision that you have to make is when the three years ends have you done the work and the shaping so that you already have the next contract or are you going to wait till 60 days before to start developing a relationship where they trust you more than they trust somebody that they work with for five years. Yeah. I mean, the, the, the time passes whether you, you do this or not. I would tell you, I get asked all the time, when do you give up on a prospect? And I go to something that Harvey McKay said uh, in one of his books, Swim with the Sharks Without Being Eaten Alive. They die or you die. And, and that's it. Like, why would you give up? I mean, the time is going to pass anyway. You're going to still prospect to other companies anyway. Why would you ever give up? And my, my experience in staffing, you know, it took me seven years to win an anchor account that I won. And uh, after that seven years, they spent $2 million a year with me. It took me uh, 11 years to win another one that spent $2.5 million for 20 years. I mean, so $50 you know, million dollars like, in revenue. This is going to sound like terrible one-upmanship, and it's not intended to. I got a, a, into a client, and the, well, the first thing I said when I met the client was, it's taken me 18 years to be set up as at you. And he said, really? It's true. And I said, yes, it's taken me 18 years. And it took me 18 years to get into that client. And actually, I made a big portion of my revenue last year. I've not been, you know, at them every single day, let's be clear. Right. Gently, gently, just building them as part of my campaigns, gently touching them and touching them and touching them. And it came good in the end, didn't it, mate? So so, so I said seven years. 
Sorry? I said seven years and you said 18 years. So I'm almost 300% better than you. (laughs) (laughs) Love it. There's a a point on that. The reason I mention it is, is it did take me 18 years to get into this client and I placed people with them. And for people listening, it's unit four, you know, 100%. That's what it is. Uh, A Dutch software vendor that are big in England. For the preceding 18 years, should I have not made those calls and gone after other con- and gone after other contracts? What do you reckon? Or were they were they not a dream client? Did they I, were dream, is that a you, time for me? A hundred percent. And it wasn't the only thing you did. You won a lot of other clients over the oh, yeah. eighteen years, right? I mean, so that that like, why would you ever give up? And now you have them. So let's say you keep them for another eighteen years. I mean, it, it tends to work that way. And yeah, and does. listen, the loyalty that somebody shows, if if someone's not loyal then they're probably not going to be loyal to you. I mean, the reason you want the dream clients is because once you start creating value yeah, for them. And you good the- point. So just to uh, uh, summarize what you were just saying then, for people listening, is your point is, is because it took 18 years to get into them, they're clearly loyal. So if yeah. you get into them, they might be loyal to me for 18 years. Right. I mean, that, that, then they probably will, as long as you continue to create value for them from quarter to quarter and come up with new ideas and try to get better, you'll keep them. Now that's the segue. I've got to say the, the single most best thing in this book, full Ooh, stop for me. Really? And I do like the book. The pinnacle moment. Yeah. I, 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 you were talking about, and I'm, you know, paraphrasing you heavily here, but basically you've said, listen, you've spent all this time trying to get into your client. How are you going to stay in there? And actually what you're talking about is continually adding value. And you say something like, imagine you had uh, across the top of your page, 36 quarters with your client. What would your 36 quarters plan look like? And how would you add value to your client for those 36 quarters? Because then in that way, you've put, I think you called it a ring of fire around your client, didn't you? Right, right. I thought that was, did you read that bit, Jonathan? I thought that was absolutely right on the money that. Where did that come from? Uh, I, the way that I've learned everything is experience. And, and what happens is if you start to get complacent and you don't have new value to create, somebody else is going to come in and say, I have new value to create. Well, you're, praying on, you're praying on your competitor's complacency and lack of adding value, aren't you, essentially? All the time. And, and then how would you protect you? And I start off the book at that. So the, the book is bookended by, listen, a lot of the opportunities that come to you are through complacency or dissatisfaction or apathy or neglect and all those things. And then I talk about, but, but most of the time they've learned to live with that from other people. So we have to come in with an approach that says it's level four, it's capturing mindshare, it's creating these opportunities, it's understanding the stakeholders, but the book ends in sort of the same place where it starts. Okay. So if that's how you get many of your opportunities and that's how they find a way to disrupt you, what do you do about it? And I think about the guy in the woods by himself and he's surrounded by wolves, what do you do? You build a ring of fire so nothing can come into that ring of fire and, and, and get you. And that's really what you're trying to do is to say, I'm going to make it impossibly difficult for somebody to come and take my clients away from me. Mm. But I, thought was, I thought it was great that I really, I really rated that. And in fairness, what we're seeing the rise of, I know you want to say something, John, but what we're seeing the rise of at the minute in the UK is you've got new business sales execs, account managers, yep. And you've got customer success managers and the customer success manager, their role is to make sure is the ring of fire. Yeah. The client is invested into the technology that they've bought. Yes. And I just thought that that benefit realization is what they talk yeah, about. Yeah. I thought that was clients. absolutely right on the money that I think if, if there was a few takeaways that I would advise people take, one of them is you've spent 18 years getting into the blooming account. 
hang on to it. Hang on to it, and that's how you do it. I thought that was absolutely right in the money, that. Question. How you grow. So you're in chapter seven, building consensus. And I, I, firstly, I really like the idea of CEO of the problem. It's a slightly different paradigm. I wrote that. I loved that as a phrase, and, yeah. And, and I'm going to think a lot more about that. Something that I did write down was why so little emphasis on cultivating a coach in an account? Well, that would probably be the CEO, but I think that's, that's ground that's been covered. I mean, that, that, that ground about figuring out who your sponsor, who your coach is, what CEB calls the mobilizer. Yeah. I, I, I didn't go into that as deeply because, well, first off, you have a contract with a publisher and you have 65,000 words. Okay, so that's how many words you have. I have a lot more words than that, uh, but, but that's all the words that I could right. get. So you have to make decisions as to what to cover. What I was trying to show there, and, and most of what this book is, is the concept I have in Mindshare. It's a new lens. So level four, there's a new lens. Capturing Mindshare, there's a new lens. The cadence for prospecting, there's a new lens. So I'm trying to provide all these new lenses for people to look at to bring selling up to what I think is necessary now in, in the world that we live in now. That lens though is, uh, do they have a preference for somebody right now? What level of value do they perceive you to be? Are they compelled to change? Uh, yeah. Are they engaged in the process? And do they have formal authority or do they have influence so that you can get a look at? What do you do? And people say, well, I have an obstacle. What do I do with an obstacle? Well, somebody has to tell you what to do with an obstacle. And so that hasn't been written. And the, the part that I wanted to show you is that you can do some math on this and you can take something that's completely subjective and make it objective by putting a score on it. So Michael is an obstacle. I know he's an obstacle in your life right now because you're doing the show and that tends to be difficult for you, I can see. But the, 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 the thing that you want is you, when you look at somebody highly engaged, highly opposed to you, you got to make a decision. Do I deal with that at the beginning of the process because I have executive yeah. sponsorship? Do I do it at the end of the process? What are the trade-offs that I'm making? How do I know how to treat different groups of stakeholders as now I'm trying to manage in some cases, I think CEB's more recent research is going to show that the number of people involved in a deal has doubled. So how do you start making sense of that so I know what to do with them and how to treat them and how to figure out how I get to yes when there's all these different kinds of characters throughout the story here that we have to deal with. Okay. And, and is that tied into, you know, I guess it's the same question around something that I wrote and was, was bouncing around in my mind earlier was there's not a lot of talk about how actually to get access to the other stakeholders. So there's lots of talk about when do you make your play to a stakeholder when are you going to time it? How are you going to time it? But you're not talking much about actually, how, where's my access point? Is that in your other books? Do I need to read your other books? Because I think you're grabbing them now. Okay. It's this one. Yeah. Right. You're one book behind. You got to catch up. Yeah. All right. Uh, there, there, this well, is. I'll catch this, up. We'll come back on the show and talk about that book again. Okay. This book is Be Somebody Worth Buying From in the First Place. This is a yep. competency model, despite its red cover and its provocative name, The Only Sales Guide You'll Ever Need which was an unfortunate title for a guy with a three book deal. So like we, we all knew that wasn't the only book. This book is how to execute the 10 commitments, including bringing in the other stakeholders. And then this book is displacement of okay. all the things that I've taught. Level four is the oldest, the oldest concept that I've taught. And it's been only in the third book because I felt like we have to build a path to getting people there because as Michael has shared already, people are way, way, way behind on the curve here. I mean, they're way behind. And if, if we don't catch them up, level four looks really, really difficult. So I put them in this order to try to help get people uh, a ramp to go up. 
I, I think I think your book is 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 in a lot of ways the same as a lot of books, in as much as a lot of these different sales methodologies and whether they work are about people's willingness to actually do them. Yeah. You know, full stop, that's it. You know, you're nodding, I can Desire. see that, but it, it's Desire, all about man. that, isn't it? Desire. Somebody's going to write a book one day and they're going to call it The Perfect Salesman. They're going to open it up. It's going to have one page and it's going to have one word in it and that word is going to be motivation. Intrinsic motivation is really the, the only thing that you have to start with. So when, when in your roles, what you do in hiring, and I've spent a lot of time, I mean, I don't know that anybody's interviewed more people than I have. I interviewed about 40 people a day. That's a lot. For five lot. years. No, I interviewed that many. <laughs> for, for five years, I did that. And it wasn't executive. So these were, you know, uh, laborers predominantly. And some part of my subconscious mind got programmed that this one's not going to work this one's going to work. And, and, and somebody would ask, like, how can you tell? I, I don't know. I really don't know. But it's the thin slice. If, if you've, you know, Malcolm Gladwell's thin slice out of Blink, you just yeah, start. Right. Michael and I do it now with candidates. I, I, I can schedule a one-hour interview with a candidate and 15 seconds in, I can go, oh, That's why I never schedule one-hour interviews. I schedule 15-minute uh, meet and greets over the phone because if you can't get through the first couple questions I ask you, then there's no reason to have a long yeah, but you know that you, you know whether they're going to get through the first couple of questions after having spoke to them for a minute. The, the, thinking, well, what's the point in asking the questions now? You, you, exactly. So why invest an hour? I mean, an hour yeah. is a long time with someone that you know you can't hire, in my opinion. And, and you can see it in seven seconds, I think, is generally, and you've been doing this long enough uh, that your subconscious mind knows as soon as they sit down, yeah. like, nope, they're not, they're not a fit. How do you know? Yeah. I, I'm looking at them. And uh, a guy named James Clear, who's a local guy here to Columbus, wrote a book called Atomic Habits. It's a really good book. But at some point in it, he describes something like 11 million nerves coming into the brain, bringing in information or some number like that. And 10 million of them come through your eye. So uh, as we've evolved as human beings over three and a half million years or whatever it is, some part of us can pick something up because there's so much information that we don't even know we're picking up uh, yeah. th that it, you, you make a decision very quickly. And so for salespeople listening, that's what happens to you when you walk into a room. I mean, yeah, that, that's what happens. Somebody makes a decision very quickly. That's quick. what you're talking about later on in the later chapters. About I want to executive to the book presence. About executive presence. Absolutely. When you wrote that, I thought, I know what that guy means. You know, it's interesting. I've never verbalized it as well as you verbalized it. I've never tried. But sometimes we've had people work for us and you can sort of weirdly see them shrinking in size on the phone. They look and physically Johnny will say, small. What's this? How's this guy getting on? I'll say... He looks small, he, he, and I don't know why. He looks like a little man. It's just weird, isn't it? And yeah. slowly it crushes them. Or sometimes, you know, the opposite, obviously. People look massive. You ask Johnny, I, 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 I ask Johnny's wife how tall Johnny is. She, My wife thinks I'm tall. <laughs> <laughs> Does that make sense? She th but in her subconscious mind, I'm a tall human being. But that's because what you're talking about in the executive presence. So if you haven't read uh, Influence, The Psychology of Persuasion by Robert Cialdini, I mean, add it to your list. So one thing we know about authority is if you show up wearing a suit and you've got a tie on, when you ask people how tall you are, it's at, the average is two inches taller than you actually are because you look like authority. You need, is that right? You need that suit. I, yeah, I, I need it. I'm only five foot eight. <laughs> well, you look five ten to me. I mean, <laughs> 
And that, that is, I mean, so this is, this is deep psychology, which I, I, I like to read and study. And some of it ends up in books that I write because the, the, we know this, that if you show up with that presence, you look taller, you look more confident, you, you look like somebody that I can trust. But if you don't look like you're buttoned up and, and that you don't look like you have that confidence, it does make people feel smaller. And some of that they would, I mean, the, the way to help people get confidence, in, in my view, is to give them competence. So the more competent you are, the easier it is for you to be confident because you know you can generate that outcome, which yeah. is why those three books I held up are in that order. First, get competent. Get competent at having these conversations. Get competent in controlling the process. Get competent at being truly consultative, which means telling people, we need to bring in your IT department. I know they're going to struggle with what we're doing right here, but if we leave them out of this conversation and we get too far ahead of them, they're going to have the moral high ground to go to somebody and say, we've not been part of this process. We disagree with what we're trying to do here. Our project board is too heavy right now. We can't do this. And they're going to win. But, but if that happens to you 10 times and you keep approaching yeah. it the same way, that's you. I mean, you need yeah, to change luck. what you're doing. And I'm afraid of having that conversation because what if I lose the deal? Well, if you don't have the conversation, you lose the deal. So in the second book, I wrote The Lost Art of Closing, chapter 15 is called Fearing the Wrong Danger. You're, you're afraid of losing because you won't have this conversation. You're going to lose because you won't have that conversation. So what should you do if that's true? Mm-hmm. Have the conversation. Have the conversation. Yeah. And that, and that, that's, that's what makes you consultative and a trusted advisor and a peer. It is. It is. I think we've got pretty much through the book here. Well, yeah, I mean, I think we have. Um, any other questions, Mike? I don't have any other questions n- necessarily. Um, I-, I thought for me, I thought the book was well written for a start. I think, and, I, and, and we've, I don't know how many of these book clubs you've seen, but we read this one by this guy called Peter Drucker. The, what yeah. was it The Effective Executive. Have you ever read that? Oh, yeah, a couple of times. I mean, I mean, the content of it is superb. But I mean, God, he couldn't. I mean, you can tell it's an old book in terms of how, it hurt in, our brain. how it inaccessible hurt my brain. it is. You know, it's inaccessible the way it was. Drucker, Drucker was born in the 1930s. And exactly. so the, the, you're talking about a guy who, who came. Yeah, it was, a, it was a, a long time ago. And he is probably, of, of all the management and leadership thinkers ever, He's right at the top of the stack. There's no doubt about it. But it, it, it does not, I mean, it's, it's certainly not bedtime reading unless you have a deep insomnia and you need a little help. And then uh, some of the Drucker stuff can set you on your way. But it is, uh, it is worth reading. And thank you for the kind words about the, writing the book. I, no, I, 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 I like the books that have an action point at the end of each chapter. I thought it was good that. Yeah. I, and I've got to say... And I've, like I downloaded the workbook today. Did you? I think that's really nicely laid out, Anthony. Um, and I'm going to actually use a couple of bits of it. What I'm actually going to do with a couple of bits, um, and th- this book came at a very timely point for myself and Michael because we're on a big focus on um, a percentage increase in new client acquisition this year. So we've, I've kind of tied some of it in. I'm going to create quick documents of a lot of those elements and then use them as almost a standard template for each, each opportunity. So I thought that was great. So if anybody's listening, I've downloaded it. It's great. Mm. Um, if anybody ever said to me, would you recommend it? I'd say definitely. I, I've, I've done that in all three books. I've, I've, there's a workbook for all three of the books. And at the end of every chapter of all three of the books I've written, it, the beginning line of the end of the chapter is do this now. 
It, really it doesn't awesome. matter if you read it. It doesn't matter if you like it. If you don't do it, to Michael's point, you're not going to get a better result. Yeah, exactly. And, that, and that's the case. I did think chapter five hit me pretty hard. <laughs> I just thought, all right, I'm sort of steaming through this. I'm into it. You know, metaphorically, it peckers up when you read it. You think, right, I'm going to burst into work and smash somebody. But actually, chapter five, that hit me hard, that. Um, and, and I, But it's a great chapter. A great chapter. I've got to say, I mean, who knows whether you can do a fourth book or not. I could see you doing it around chapter five. I could see that being a big extension into that. Book, books number four, five, and six are, are heavily outlined right now. So this is, uh, I'm, I'm, I was going to do a book a year, but I'm giving a little bit of pause to be fair to my books because I put them out so fast, it's hard for me to do the correct marketing and to, to push the books as hard as I should, only because I'm so busy on the next book already. But there, there will be others after these. And I, I think that the, the next one will, that will come out will probably be around uh, how sales managers actually set up a cadence and stand up a, a true sales organization so they know how to help enable all these things in their, their teams because it's their job to help grow and develop the people that are in their charge. And I, I don't know that they know how to help. Oh, I do know this. They don't know how to help execute the growth of the individuals but as a leader, the one thing that you're responsible for is growing the individuals in your charge. I mean, that's what you're really there to do is develop those people. So that'll probably be what comes after that. Cool. And then the couple, the couple after that will be more very, very different. So the, the fifth one will probably be around how to develop a, an indomitable positive mindset. And uh, that, that will be a different kind of book. Right. Cool. Anthony? Thank you so much for coming on the show today. You've been a fabulous guest. Mm. Um, we'd like to invite you again. I think we'll read some of the other books if you'd like to come. Um, Love to. Probably much later on in the year because we've got pretty much, I think we're pretty much scheduled up on guests and books until about September, October. But I'd love to do another book. You've been a great guest. I've enjoyed your company. Thanks. And I think next time you're in the UK, you need to drop into Leeds for a pint. I was in Leeds uh, earlier. I was in Leeds in November. I didn't know. Had I known, I, I would have no uh, stopped by. Where were you? I, I, I was seeing, uh, speaking to a client uh, somewhere in Leeds. I don't know where I was. I was at a oh, hotel wow. somewhere. Yeah. Fantastic. Cool. Fantastic. Listen, nice to see you. Thank you very much for your time. Right. Thank cool. you too. Lauren, if you hit the end record button. And I lost your video. 